Did I nearly? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, Yep, we're recording. Um, You're listening to The Yarn, a podcast for the Australian wool industry. I'm Ella Edwards and I'm here with Ellie Bigwood. Hey. So Ellie is a part of the Australian Wool Innovation Graduate Program. She's made the trip from WA, Franklin River, a wool growing property over there, and she's now residing in Sydney. And today is a day of first because Ellie is debuting on The Yarn. It's a very exciting time, Ella. I mean, any excuse to talk is a good excuse to talk, so I'm pretty excited about it. I spoke with Sally Martin, who's the CEO of Merino Link, when we went down to the Merino Link conference in Goulburn and Yass. And she organised the event, basically, the conference, which had a lot of researchers, industry bodies, and then also just looked at on-farm technology and condition scoring and all things practical. She's also involved with the Merino Lifetime Productivity Project, which is arguably one of the biggest sheep experiments in the world, which is pretty exciting. So it's good to talk to her. And hasn't she just won a mentorship? Oh, yeah, she's she's done a lot of things. And you know what? I'm actually going to take you to our chat with her because I think she can fill you in better than I can. Sally, you've just organised a Marina Link conference. From my perspective, it's been such a success and I've loved every minute. Can you please tell me a little bit about it and how you think it's gone this year? Oh, thank you for the feedback. The Marina Link conference is, uh, this is actually our fifth annual conference and Marina Link's a not-for-profit company that we set up in 2012 with a group of uh, ram breeders, commercial breeders and service providers. And our aim is to help facilitate and bring people together to network, to share information, also to facilitate the development of research and the connections with our RDCs, like Australian Wool Innovation, MLA, and the CRC as examples. And so we can actually try and be at the forefront in our industry so that we can help producers identify better ways to in terms of increasing productivity so that we can all be sustainable in terms of our businesses. Fantastic and how long have you been involved with Merino Link? So I've been involved with Merino Link since its inception. I used to work for the Department of Agriculture as the sheep and wool officer and The State Department went through some budget, I guess, refinements, if you like, and I ended up going out on my own and I actually started up my own business. And as a part of that, there was interest to continue. Uh, We were running a sire evaluation at the time with the group of growers that I mentioned before, and we basically sat down and said, well, how can we keep doing what we've been doing keep um, the interest, the networking. I guess the the previous um, extension officers within the department, as an example, were doing. And I guess that's how Marina Link kind of came about. So I guess I've been involved with it, as I said, from the inception and currently the CEO. And also I do a lot of project management and a lot of the the day-to-day stuff. So we're only a small organisation. I'm curious as to your background in agriculture. How did you get into the industry? So I actually grew up on the Monero and have always had a, a, a well an interest in, in agriculture. I was involved in most facets of the farm, family farm growing up. So always, you know, drinking sheep to, you know, carting hay. And my father's always encouraged to work in agriculture. I actually did um, some work experience when I was in year 10 and 11 at the Department of Ag and thought, well, what the sheep and wool officer was doing was pretty good. So 
off I went to university, which was Hawkesbury Ag at the time, and then got had a number of different jobs, land care, all sorts of things, and then got a job with the Department of Ag as the sheep and wool officer in um, 99. So, and then just my interest and the support from the people that I was working with has helped to provide the pathway that I've kind of gone down always have had a passion for sheep and wool. I think that's actually how I got my job with the department. I think I went to the um, interview and they said, um, you know, what are the key issues? And I mentioned that, but I'd forgot OJD. OJD was quite important at the time. And um, I thought, oh no, I buggered up the interview. And then all of a sudden they rang and said, oh, we'd like to offer you the job. And I thought, really? You can't, can't be doing that. And the, their comment was, you had so much enthusiasm, we had to give you the job. Ellie, it sounds like you had a great chat with Sally. What else did you speak about? Yeah, definitely. It was great speaking with her. Well, Ella, Sally has just been nominated for the inaugural National Farmers Federation Ag Leadership Program. And I wanted to know a little bit more about that and her role in this. So here's what she had to say about that. I was actually nominated by one of the Marina Link members, which is very humbling and a great honour and I think there were 123 applicants. So the Ag Leadership Program, credit to the National Farmers Federation for their initiative in the program that they've developed and there's a number of partners within the program that are providing support which is fantastic and they've all made a pledge to look at increasing the diversity in their organisations, whether that be at the board level or um, at the higher management level. And I guess that's what the programs aim to do. So the number of um, the other seven women that are involved in this, we've been paired with a mentor and we've got a structured mentoring program that we're going through over the next five months. And a lot of that has to do with getting some skills as well as setting goals and, and for leadership aspirations, as well as some advocacy. So there's sometimes we're in a situation where we're very busy doing a lot of the stuff that we do, but how do we make those connections with the next level to then still be able to have a positive influence and a positive contribution to our industry? And so I've found it as something that is going to be really important to take, I guess, my career to another level and the opportunity to be involved is, is very exciting for me and I've been mentored with um, Georgie Alley and it's, she comes from a very different background and I'm really excited to be able to get her to challenge me because I think sometimes we can become complacent with what we're doing and we do do things well, but it's really nice to be able to do some succession planning. So this is kind of part of me going, well, how do I get to another level? But also, how do I nurture all the people that are coming along with me? And that was a big part of what we were trying to do here at Marina Link over the last couple of days, is to really encourage young people to be involved and provide them with networking opportunities. So I think you can go to uni and school and you can learn lots of things, but having a bit of initiative and having the connections to make make those next steps is sometimes a little bit daunting. So that's what we were also trying to do. So I suppose for me, I can see it as, as from a personal level, but also being able to provide those opportunities for young people is really important for me as well. You talked about the positive contributions that you hope to bring to the industry and no doubt that the Marina Link Conference itself is a great way to get young people involved. What other steps are there that you can take to get young people involved and continue on that positive road? 
So I guess I'm involved in another program um, that we've, or scholarship program that we've set up called um, the Peter Westlake Scholarship. So that's another way that we're trying to do that. I often have year, fourth year and third year ag students doing work placement. And we just, I think being able to show people that the diversity of job opportunities or just even career opportunities in agriculture generally, but also in the sheep and wool industry. So even if you're really good at something to do technically, some computers and stuff like that, there's still a role for you in our, our industry. So you don't just have to be in a sheep yard or anything like, you know, just doing the physical side of it. That's really important and we want to grow that side of the industry too with young people. But we also need to have that support mechanism. So for service providers that surround it, whether they be wool brokers or people that are going out and helping to collect information, interpreting that information, marketing, like there's so many things that you can do that are associated with this industry. And finally, Sally, I know Merino Link is involved with MLP, which is a huge project based on looking at lifetime productivity of Merino sheep. Mm -hmm. Could you please tell me a little bit about that? Yes, we're one of five sites involved in the, in the project and that's been run with um, Australian Wool Innovation and the Australian Merino Sire Evaluation Association, AMPSIA. And all of the sites have started out as sire evaluation and then the U portion of the progeny we follow through for their lifetime. So having an involvement in that's very exciting. We're collecting a lot of reproduction and adult information that we don't have a great deal of in the industry. So being able to add that to the current data set and be able to make well-informed predictions and genetic decisions based on that is going to be really exciting. So the number of sires that have been entered into it, into the project, uh, are from a very diverse background as well. So they're not all rams that have been bred under, say, that are involved in Marina Select. And so we've got other ram breeders that have put in rams that, that aren't associated with that, that have a different, slightly different philosophies and stuff like that. So the, the number of rams that have been entered from a broad cross-section of the industry, which I think is another exciting component, so ones that haven't necessarily been measured in certain programs in the past, so we, we're seeing the involvement across the industry, which is really good. Sally Martin, thank you for your continued love and support for the sheep and wool industry, and thank you for having a yarn with us today. My pleasure. Ellie, Sally is such a goer. Really interesting interview. How did you think it went? I think it went all right. I hope she didn't think I talked too much. <laughs> nah, she, she's great. She's obviously really proactive in getting young people involved, but also keeping involved herself. She, I mean, she's got MLP going. She's working for Merino Link, has her own farm background. And yeah, she's done a lot of things in her time. And Ella, while I was speaking with Sally, you had a great conversation with the CEO of Michelle Walls, is that right? Yeah, so I spoke with Steve Reed, and as you said, he's the CEO of Michelle Walls, and he's a wealth of knowledge. With processing plants both here in Australia and in China, Michelle Wool is um, across the industry, and of course then so is Steve. Um, we spoke about the changing nature of processing in China and why we need to promote the great story wool has to our consumers. I caught up with him just before dinner, so excuse the noise in the background. Here he is. I think there was actually three themes that came out of today, and, and the three that really captured 
the questions or the imagination of the, uh, I think, almost 200 delegates here today. Um, the, the first one was developments on uh, environmental regulations and indeed all regulations in China. And, and given China's processing at the early stage, uh, what almost 75% of Australia's wool is significant what happens there. Uh, I'm fortunate I've uh, worked for Michelle's. We've got a plant in China, wholly owned, so we're pretty close to what's, what's happening. And I did share with the audience the fact that um, environmental regulations in China now are equal to, if not stricter than what we see in Europe and Australia. And um, being a centrally controlled um, organ- or country, um, when the rules are in place, they'll be enforced. So uh, now we're seeing plants, uh, scouring carbonising plants in particular, either facing um, the risk of closing, and some are, um, and they either have to upgrade their wastewater treatment plants or, uh, or close down. And uh, given there's a significant overcapacity in early stage processing, this will probably bring about the closure of the smaller inefficient early stage processes that are probably sitting on valuable land, given what land price has done in China. And the, the bigger plants will, will invest um, and, and will, will be capable of meeting those, um, those limits. We know in our plant we're able to do it. We, we upgraded 18 months ago uh, in, in conjunction with some of our neighbours who aren't textile processors, they're, they're in food, so it can be done. But the, the, the take-home message was those small, cheap, cheerful plants that aren't following the rules will go, and they'll go very quickly, and the early-stage processing in China will no longer be cheap, um, and it will no longer be done on um, what would, unsustainable grounds. And it's becoming uh, not as cheap because of that sustainability, is that right? Because China is more aware of their environmental issues and also their, you know, land is not infinite and labour is getting more expensive. Is that right? Oh, exactly right. And, and scouring and carbonising in particular is not labour intensive. It's a high, high user of water, high user of energy, um, and a lot of cost and energy and space actually needed to treat the, the waste product, which is primarily water um, with grease and uh, contaminants, um, oxidised grease, and a lot of uh, a lot of Australian dirt, which has to be collected um, and ash and uh, put back into compost. So it's it is a sustainable activity, which is great because it goes with the sustainable nature of wool. But to do it properly, uh, it's not cheap. And so, where do you see the uh, first stages of processing going into the future if China becomes less and less viable? Well, it's not clear, and there is enough capacity in, in, at the moment in China that can do it properly, that it's not an issue of this afternoon. But um, in the longer term, and whether that's five years to, or ten years, you know, we really have to think about where early stage processing will take place. It's hard to imagine we'll see what happened in the last 20 years of everything being picked up and located um, to one country, which is what happened with China. All the plants from Australia, from Europe, from Japan, Korea, the States all ended up pretty much in China. I don't think we're going to see that again, of a mass relocation of early stage processing to a lower cost country that's not fussed about environmental. Those days are over. And the countries that would probably accept that sort of thing um, wouldn't be a place where you'd want to invest your money. So it, it, it's, it's not clear where it'll go. Um, there's some, some speculation it might go in, uh, to the western parts of China where um, unemployment's moderately high and certainly the Chinese government wants to develop that part of their, their country. Uh, having said that, it's a long way out there. It's miles away from consumers and from middle stage processing and certainly a long way from raw material. Or uh, somebody in the audience today threw up, would it come back to Australia? And that's not as silly as it sounds. We, we run a, a factory in Adelaide and it's competitive with our Chinese factory. You know, so maybe 
maybe, and, and I'll cross my fingers, not that you can see that, uh, maybe it does come back to Australia, as we saw 15 years ago with a, a quite a viable and significant early stage processing industry. Wow, interesting times. And could you comment on what you're hearing from consumers and and the retailers, brands, spinners, weavers about Australian wool and where they want to see it go? Yeah, good, good, good question. And um, the last couple of weeks, I've been fortunate to visit most of our wool spinning clients. Um, and also, we had the the IWTA conference in Hong Kong three, four weeks ago. So um, the big themes coming out of, of that is is still. A, um, an animal welfare awareness and, and an expectation from retailers, particularly in Northern Europe, uh, Scandinavia for example, Western Europe to a lesser extent and the States and Japan very much so, is they want some sort of confirmation that animal welfare issues are being addressed. But what, what is, and that's not new, that's not new, what is, um, what is new is this whole talk of sustainability which uh, has gone back to a term which I haven't heard for years which is cradle to grave. So the bigger brands in particular and the bigger um, retail retail groups is probably the best way to describe them, are asking questions of sustainability right back to the farm gate. Is, is animal welfare issues being dealt with correctly on the farm? Are the chemicals being used, approved and sustainable? Is that farm looking after the waterways, natural grasses, um, local flora and fauna? And then it goes on from there. Um, one of the bigger brands was actually querying whether shearers and farm workers are being paid enough. And it was quite interesting to hear that comment and see the grower's response when that, when that audit took place. He did say something they paid too much, but didn't go down terribly well. But it flows on from there. Um, the, the early stage processor, are they dealing with their, their waste correctly? Um, are, is the dye stuffs being used, being treated correctly? Are the garments being sent to a sweatshop in Bangladesh, for example? Um, and then right at the end, uh, and this is where wool does terribly well compared to other, other fibres, is that product recyclable or is it going to landfill? And that cradle to grave um, and full sustainability with audit uh, by some of the top end brands, and that'll flow down to the, the middle brands I'm, I'm sure in time, is actually putting wool in pretty good stead because we've got a good story to tell. That was Steve Reed of Michelle Wools. Super interesting combo there, Ella. What did you take away from it? Well, it was great speaking about the processing in China. It's a topic I don't really know a lot about. And I think for a lot of wool growers who don't have direct contact with Chinese manufacturers or processors, it's probably new knowledge for them too. Well, that's it it for this week's episode of The Yarn, folks. It was great having you on board, Ellie. (laughs) Thank you for having me, Ella. Yeah, and I'm definitely looking forward to my next foray into interviewing. If you've got any feedback for us, please email theyarn at wool.com and rate and review us on iTunes. Also remember to subscribe to the podcast because we're going to be hearing more from Ellie in the coming weeks. Go to subscribe or you won't be able to hear it. And also you can follow our Instagram account at Beyond the Bale for your weekly and daily dose of sheep photos and also Twitter at Wool Innovation. Mm-hmm.